yes, today I'm wilderness woman. <laughs> I feel that way. Welcome to episode 128 of the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Lee, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. If you have friends, chances are you have given them advice at some point, or you may be more formally mentoring or pastoring somebody. This all fits into the broad definition of counseling. Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Erin Hesse, our resident wilderness woman who's on staff at High Point, recently attended a counseling session together, and Erin left with several questions that they will be discussing the answers to in this episode. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! Hey everyone, welcome to a, I don't know if this could be a series, but um, one of the things we're, I've been doing on our staff team is inviting some of our staff members who haven't been um, to theological training and don't have any training in counseling or giving formal spiritual advice pastorally into sessions of, I'm, I use the word counseling in the colloquial sense mm-hmm. here, not in the therapeutic sense. Um, into these counseling sessions that I have with people so that they can observe them and learn from them and mm-hmm. hopefully grow in their ability to give spiritual advice themselves. So uh, I need to, s- and so Aaron is here with me today. We're yes. going to talk about a counseling session we were in together mm-hmm. very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to say this though, when you listen to us, when I say the word counseling or if Aaron says the word counseling, we are not referring to government approved psychotherapeutic or cognitive counseling that happens in a medic medical insurance approved Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. um we're talking about the colloquial meaning giving counsel to another person that is Mm -hmm. giving another person advice or helping another person grow Mm -hmm. and we don't even quite mean biblical counseling either no okay because biblical counseling is what as opposed to what we're doing telling people what the bible says in a way that applies to their life situation, which is part of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But what I'm talking about generally is pastoring or shepherding someone through a conversation that helps them grow, mm-hmm. specifically in being able to deal with their problems that they're acutely having at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, I would just if it's just to grow, I would call that discipleship. Sure. Usually what counseling is, I'm having this problem right now. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. Which sense? anybody, you don't have to be a pastor or work on a church staff to be in a position where you may be in the way that we're using it, counseling someone. Right. And as we'll get to, the main thing that most people require is listening. Mm. Yep. And anybody who's willing to listen can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So yeah, when I sat in on this session with Nick, there were five or six questions that came up as the session was going on that I thought, I, I don't know the answer to this legitimately and I wanted to ask you about it. And so we thought, let's report, record a podcast and get these answers out there. So yeah. first one that I had was um, ultimately, what is, Nick, your main goal when you're counseling somebody and what do you aim for so that you don't get distracted from that main goal? Yeah. <clears throat> so what well, first... Um, I want to cooperate with what God wants to do, right? Mm-hmm. I'm also, I also, to the extent possible, want to cooperate with what they're trying to do, the person. So usually they come and they want something, mm-hmm. right? They want to, they want a problem to go away. They want to know what's going on, mm-hmm. something like that. So I want them to be able to figure that out. 
Um, but generally speaking, in the most in the most general sense, I want to move them one step forward, so that they can go out of the office and they'll they'll know what they could do if they cared to do something. Sure. So sometimes I liken it to like when you lose your keys or something, and as long as you're still looking in places where you think they might be, you have hope and you have motivation. Mm-hmm. But when you get to the point where you're like, you've looked everywhere three times, you have no idea where they could be. You're completely out of options. You, you're, you're just, you're done. You get discouraged and you want to just quit. Mm-hmm. Right. And oftentimes when people go to biblical counseling or pastoral counseling or, or clinical counseling, it's, that's where they are. Yeah. They just have no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what I want to do is I want to get them out of that space and into a space where they've got three, four, five, six, twelve places to look. Mm-hmm. And th- so if they cared to really grow or overcome this thing in their life, they would know what to apply themselves to. Sure. And I'm sure you've had counseling situations where maybe someone comes in and they see the twelve to fourteen to sixteen options. And, and so a next step down. Yeah. So yeah. next step for them would be narrowing it down from there. Yeah. Okay. Or number in what order they will try these 12 things. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're counseling somebody who's a Christian, you can easily bring in scripture and start to point out, okay, well, what does God say about this? And mm-hmm. um, have you prayed about it? How do you, how do you specifically counsel a, somebody who isn't a Christian? And like, how do you know when to put the gospel in front of them or when to, you know, ask them to respond to that? Like how, in this particular situation, it was somebody who isn't a Christian. And so how do you navigate those waters? Yeah. <clears throat> so the, I'm, I'm not sure the premise of your question is true about what I would do with a Christian. Oh, um, sure. <laughs> uh, because just going straight to the biblical teaching is often not the issue. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they know what the Bible says, um, but it, it's, they don't know how to apply it in this particular situation. Yeah. They know the Bible says A and B. And they don't know which takes precedence or mm-hmm. how you do them both yeah. or do you pick between them or... Yeah, but it's at least a reference point where right. it's considered truth. So in a situation where mm-hmm. somebody doesn't necessarily consider yeah. the Bible Now, truth. you will have a lot of situations with people who are professing Christians and in many areas of their life, you, you seem to see the gospel in the spirit operating mm-hmm. And then you will find that the area in which this problem resides is Mm -hmm. completely unsurrendered Mm -hmm. and the word of God has not been granted the authority it requires. Sure. And so in that case, you're not actually telling them this is what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is this is what the Bible says. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You have to like reconnect them to this authority. And, And then you don't just say, now go do it. You say, let's explore why you have been so willing mm-hmm. to submit to Jesus in all these other areas of your life mm-hmm. and not this one. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons that it could be. Idolatry has lots of mistresses. And so figuring that out is meaningful and important so that they can not only know what they're doing is wrong, but they can find the motivation to mm-hmm. repent and escape it. And without motivation, nothing happens in counseling. Yeah. You always have to think not just what should this person do, but where will this person find the strength to do it? Mm. And then into what the clinical counselors would consider cognitive psychology. Then what, quote, tools or mm. tactics do I give this person they might not know? Yeah. But in, in clinical counseling, that third area, 
what tools can I give this person is often considered the main work of counseling. Mm -hmm. And from a spiritual perspective within the gospel, it is just one of three or four main practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what do you do in the situation when someone's not, yeah, someone's not a Christian. Yeah. I mean, you do what you do in any conversation is you try to find common ground. Okay. Right. And so in this situation, when I talked with this person, I appealed to things that he seemed to have already said. Hmm. Um, you know, people, Christians are never as good as their theology and unbelievers are never as bad as their philosophy. Hmm. So, uh, and even people who don't believe the gospel still can observe many, many, many true things about nature and human nature. Mm -hmm. And so this person we're referring to believes a lot of true things about human nature Mm -hmm. in a very limited way because the person has closed off certain areas of knowledge because um, the person doesn't believe in them. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot to appeal to. And so what I was looking for is what do we share Mm -hmm. that we can appeal to? And if I need another premise that he doesn't seem to believe in, are there any premises that he would actually fairly easily grant Mm -hmm. if I made a very brief argument for them? Yeah. Um, Or in some cases, something that the person wouldn't say they believe, they'll make a statement that assumes that belief. So Mm -hmm. I can just point that out. Mm -hmm. Now, when you said this, that kind of assumes this, right? That you mean that, right? And then oftentimes they'll be like, oh yeah, I guess I do. Hmm. Okay. Because one of the things to realize is that it's a very small percentage of people whose views are very thought out. Mm-hmm. There's certain temperaments of like usually highly neurotic people or extremely conscientious people, people with very organized minds that have thought through everything oftentimes excessively. And so a lot of where their nervousness often comes from. Yeah. But for most people, they don't think things through very well. Even people who are educated, think of themselves as intellectual, speak in very sophisticated language oftentimes I've not thought through what they think very well at all. Yeah. And so in a, in a counseling session, they can realize they believe a number of things they didn't think they believed. Hmm. And oftentimes those are premises that you need to help with move forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So at the very beginning, let me stop you just a second. Oh yeah. Because when they leave your office, they will only continue on with the things they believe. Right. Not the things you believe. Yeah. That is that is really convicting. And earlier when you said you're not trying to tell them the things that they need to do, you're, you're, what did you say? You're wanting to find common ground in what they, and understanding what they already do believe. Right. And, or can be easily persuaded. Yeah. And in the truths that you do see from like that, that they do have that you know to be true. And there's so many truths about ourselves that we can't not know. And the gospel is rooted in all those things because Mm -hmm. God is the God who created the reality that the gospel is spoken into. Mm -hmm. So there's so many truths that they believe in. Sometimes it's truths they believe in that we Christians use all the time, but that they believe but are completely inoperative Mm -hmm. in their understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. So what I have to do is not put that truth into them, but simply activate it. Kind of like in the field of epigenetics when people say, you know, there are their genes in people, but genes can be deactivated or activated by environmental things. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I can go into somebody um, in counseling and I can see a truth that they believe that would actually help them, but they haven't considered that it would help them if they applied it in a certain way. And so I'll go in and I'll activate that truth that Mm -hmm. they already believe Mm -hmm. and say, look, you already believe this. This could help you if you reflected on it this way. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, Hmm. right yeah there was one situation in the counseling session we're talking about where a person said 
this is the way I've always viewed this thing. Mm-hmm. It seems like it that Christians believe this and it actually works the opposite of the way they want it to. And what helped me was to believe the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. And so he was explaining why his experience actually rejected or was the reversal of Christian faith, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you could also think about it this way yeah. and then I explain to him a more biblical view. Yeah, and that, or, and realize it was more of a misunderstanding that he had. It was a misunderstanding, yeah. right? And once he reconceptualized it, he was like, oh, now he didn't say, oh, I guess I'm a Christian now. Right. Right, he said, oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh, I guess that objection isn't a good one and maybe I don't have to see it that way. Mm-hmm. And now I could be open to this view about God rather right. than that one. Right, And you know, that's a, that's great progress spiritually yeah. for one talk Yeah, because he didn't come in to argue about the gospel. Right. But, right. but I, but what I do want to say is to him is, Hey, this thing you've based this on, Hey, let's clear it. So sometimes the answer to one of the questions you're going to ask me had to do with like, what are you trying to do? You know? Yeah. And part of it is there's two main things I'm looking to do. Right. Obviously there's subsets of these. The first is, because the people I talk to are usually pretty intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's one of the marks of High Point Church. We tend to get yeah. educated, fairly intelligent people, people who are what Carl Jung would have called excessively conscious people. They think too much. Mm. They're they're neurotic because they obsess over things. Yeah. Right? Now, if I were a substance abuse counselor, right, mm-hmm. I could be just as intelligent or more educated than I am, but my clients oftentimes would be not the sharpest knives in the drawer. They don't think about that much. And so I might say, okay, listen, if you do this, it's going to kill you or Mm -hmm. you shouldn't take drugs (laughs) or you can't hit people. Yeah. That's not what I do here. Right. It's just a different group of people. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I'm not giving them basic life skills. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm doing. They have basic life skills. These are very functional people. And the reason they come talk to me is they can't understand why they're so functional in so many things in their lives, but that they can't handle this one thing and it seems to be blowing up their life. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah. why is this? <laughs> yeah. Right. And so the issue is why is this otherwise very functional person not able to function in this? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, you do marriage counseling with doctors, right? Mm-hmm. These are people who have never failed at anything of their life. Right. And all of a sudden they can't get along with a person they love. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're, they're like, how can this be happening? Uh-huh. And you're like, yeah, I, yeah, it's hard. Yep. I, I get it. This is your first failure. It must be especially hard. Right. <laughs> right. Sure. So there's two things I'm trying to help that kind of person deal with. Mm-hmm. One is if they can't solve this problem, it's because there's something they need to confront in themselves that they don't want to confront. They mm-hmm. don't want to see it. And because they don't want to see it, they don't. And because they don't see it, they can't confront it. And because they can't confront it, they can't be healed. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, in psychotherapeutic language, that would that's usually called repression. Oh, sure. Right. Mm-hmm. For some reason, you don't want to see it, so you deny it, you transfer it, mm-hmm. you you do you intellectualize it, you do yeah. something so you don't have to deal. And with sometimes it. you do that consciously, and sometimes. It just, it happens, yeah. you don't realize it. There's a lot of debate about how you actually define what people call the subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Bible, we're held morally accountable for things psychotherapeutic psychology would argue is subconscious. Hmm. So in the Bible, the Bible is implicitly arguing that the things we claim are subconscious, we should know. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so because of that, 
certain Christians have said what we call subconscious is at best semi-conscious. Mm-hmm. Like if we paid attention to what was going on in us, we would know, mm-hmm. right? Um, you, you can see this sometimes like dreams. Mm-hmm. Like you'll have a dream where you'll kill somebody or something. You know? sure. You're like, I guess I'm mad at that person. <laughs> but you you immediately know the, the interpretation of the dream sure. because you did know you felt that way. Hmm. You, it took mm-hmm. energy to deny that you felt that way. You were in denial. That was in your, quote, subconscious. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't totally under the surface. Yeah. Like, it's kind of like the the plant that grows underground that's big that only puts a little shoot up. Mm-hmm. You still saw that shoot. You knew it was down there. Yeah. Right? And so I I use the word subconscious because it's useful. It's the stuff that is driven by deeper places in us we're not completely connected with. Oftentimes it's what's coming out of the more primal powered part of us, mm-hmm. our desire to be accepted, partly because it's very primal, mm-hmm. but it's also embarrassing because it's so animalistic. Yeah. We don't want to accept it as governing yeah. our mentality. Yeah. So what's the difference between trying to uncover that and overthinking things? Like you said, we have a we naturally have a problem doing, especially yeah. in a well-educated well, sometimes when we overthink City. something, that's a form of intellectualization, which is a kind of repression. Okay. Right. So we start to like try to think it through, mm-hmm. but we don't really want to face it. So the direction we think it through is in ways we actually are thinking it away or justifying it. Mm-hmm. So we come up with a very sophisticated way of thinking about it that feels very Christian yeah. or whatever, but it's really a mechanism of dismissing it. Yeah. Right. Or mm-hmm. justifying it. Mm-hmm. Right. And what in fact needs to happen is we need to recognize it or realize it or repent of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And those yeah. are very different things. Sure. Does that make sense? Yep. So, mm-hmm. um, so what the psychotherapeutic person would call um, repression, right? The language in the Bible is, are things like delusion or like we, or suppression. I mean, in Romans one, it actually talks about us suppressing the truth of God. Mm. Well, suppressing the truth and psychological repression are fairly similar. Yeah. The difference is in Freudianism, repression is considered a subconscious activity. In Christian faith, hmm. it is considered a mental activity and it does the Bible doesn't define whether it's conscious or subconscious. It doesn't accept that dichotomy. And because we are always our conscious mind is always governed somewhat by our subconscious. Mm. And our subconscious thoughts are always a little bit there in our conscious mind. Yeah. If we know ourselves at all and we are responsible to know ourselves. Mm-hmm. So if we if the if those things are truly subconscious, we have chosen not to know ourselves well enough. Mm-hmm to be able to see the pieces of that that would manifest themselves in our conscious mind. And so we would know that about mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so in the Bible, we're held responsible for our subconscious mind. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, one, I'm trying to help people see, is there something in themselves they don't want to confront? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's often related to this semi-conscious, subconscious, repressive, all that kind of stuff, whatever that is, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to call that. The suppression of the truth we do in our idolatry is the is the Christian way to say it. Yeah. Or the lie we believe mm-hmm. is another way. The second thing is, is there a way they are conceptualizing the world that is wrong and is confusing them so they can't think clearly? Hmm. Right? So the example with this person we're talking about, when they were like, um, I thought about it this way. And I ended up having to do the reverse 
of what my Christian faith taught. It's one of the reasons why I don't believe in Christianity anymore. And I was able to say, actually, that was a confusion. It was yeah. fairly easy to explain it. And then he was like, oh, yeah, I guess that really makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I was able to clear that up. Yeah. And my goal in a counseling session is to look for those things where a conceptualization they're using isn't going to lead them to clarity mm-hmm. and isn't going to lead them to what psychologists, psychotherapists, somebody calls catharsis or like a realization that is cleansing and that clears the deck and helps you move forward cleanly. Mm-hmm. Um, certain conceptualizations are not going to help people have those kinds of moments Yeah, where the way they've been suppressing the truth and their idolatry gets revealed for what it is. You can repent of it and you can put it aside or metanoia repentance you can change your mind fully Mm -hmm. and that's usually what's necessary for healing at least the christianity teaches that yeah so what i want to say is okay one in what way do you have to confront yourself a way you don't want to Mm -hmm. two what conceptualizations or way of understanding things do you have that make it impossible for you to think clearly about this Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah And, and, and when you listen for those two things usually they will reveal themselves yeah that's good that's really good so at the beginning of the counseling session I, I guess I expected you to ask about some of the context from this from his experience because mm-hmm. um, some of the stuff he was talking about was like from years past, but you didn't actually ask, okay, tell me tell me what happened or tell me the story. So was there another way that you were looking to contextualize his situation? Um, is that how you always start off counseling appointments? Or I mean, do sometimes you ask for the whole story first. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of clarifications here. Mm-hmm. Okay, the, the person we're talking about, um, a very close friend died. Mm-hmm. This was like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and this had led to a profound grief presently that was creating issues. So the person couldn't function the way they wanted to in their mm-hmm. life. Okay. Not a, not a Christian, at least right now. And so I didn't say, tell me about how this person died, what happened, what led up to it. Because that's really not important, right? Mm -hmm. Because people die all the time. Mm -hmm. People lose people all the time. And they go through a certain healthy grief process and then they move on with their lives fairly functionally. Mm -hmm. And Christians do that and non-Christians do that, right? The difference here is this person's experience and interpretation and grappling with the death of this friend was what was debilitating him. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, it doesn't even matter what happened to the friend. What matters is how this person conceptualizes it, how this person thinks about it, the effect of the death on this person. Mm -hmm. So what I want to hear is for them to tell me what they want to tell me. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately what we have to deal with is not the event itself, but that person's conception and memories and thoughts about the event, Mm -hmm. right? Your memory, remember, does not remember what happened. Your memory remembers your interpretation of what happened. So when you counsel somebody, you're not dealing with a historical event. You're dealing with their conceptualization and memory Mm -hmm. of that historical event, Mm -hmm. which there's as much in your memory of the event of what that event signifies as the data of what happened. Yeah. So what you want to draw out of the person is let them tell their narrative. Hmm. And then why are they telling it this way? Why do they focus on these things? Why are they telling you the things they're telling you? Well, they're telling you their interpretation of the historical event, Mm -hmm. right? That's the data you need. Mm -hmm. So don't go, don't tell them what to tell you. Start with getting them to just tell you what they want to tell you. Yeah. That is how you started it off. You're, you're just like, 
this yeah. is for you. What do you want to talk right. about? <laughs> I know. It's right. In my normal practice, yeah. when somebody's bringing a problem to me, I'll say, I'm going to pray. Then you're going to talk. I pray. Mm-hmm. And then I say, I'm all ears. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I let them talk. Yeah. And um, like, we'll get to in a minute. I do ask clarifying questions often early mm-hmm. on. But once they get going into their narrative, I don't want to do that because the flow and way they tell the narrative is telling me a lot. One, I'm listening to the narrative as intently as I can. Mm -hmm. But then I'm also paying attention to all the other personal signals of what part of what they're telling me is the emotional trigger that they need to deal with. Mm -hmm. So where do they like pause and then keep going? Mm Mm-hmm. Where did they well up with tears and then push it back and then keep going with the narrative? Yeah. Where did they kind of smile or smirk when a smile or smirk really didn't fit the narrative? Mm-hmm. What, like where where did they shift to a completely different body language? Right? Yeah. Where did these things happen? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but the person that we were talking to um, would um, adopt my body language if I led with body language changes. So if I folded no. my arms afterwards, a little bit afterwards, they would naturally just fold their arms. Mm. If I would shift my, they would, right? When people stop mirroring you, if they were, hmm. th- like they've disconnected yeah. from you in a way because they had to like, usually it's because they had to like expend more energy focusing on what they're saying and mm-hmm. they're, they're picking up less of what's happening around them. Because mm-hmm. when they talk to you in counseling, they want to connect with you. Right. It's one of the reasons they adopt your body language. Or they connect or mirror it. So did that happen? Uh, did that change? Did he stop mirroring you at any point? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At been, uh, numerous, numerous places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. In most cases, that wasn't super key, but it happened. Sure. So you learn to pay attention to things like body language and micro expressions, mm-hmm. and um, and like you know, if somebody, like, I had a, a session a while back with some people. And it was just really unhelpful for a long time. And I was with him for longer than counselors usually suggest. I mean, this is probably 90 minutes in that this happened. Mm -hmm. And one of the people in the couple just burst into tears. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a person who had like no emotional expression throughout the whole 90 minutes other than anger. Yeah. And then tear, like real tears Mm -hmm. and not really manipulate. Sometimes people will cry to manipulate. No, this per- it was the first moment the person was being really honest with themselves and really honest with their spouse. Mm. It was the magic moment. It showed, it told me what was really going on. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful moment. And the other, the spouse had no idea how to respond to it because mm. that person had never been able to bring this out of the spou- other spouse. Yeah. And so, um, so that was a very critical moment. And it was, and so sometimes when people burst into tears, it's real obvious that's a critical moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people will just well up a little bit and they'll just keep going. Yeah. So the more observant you are, you're not just listening to what they say, you're observing the event of them telling it hmm. and what's happening in, with, and in, and through them when they're doing it. Yeah. And you're trying to take all of that in. Yeah. And usually the most critical, because they're going to tell you a lot, yeah. and you've got to narrow it down. And mm-hmm. usually the best way to narrow it down is to figure out what's going on in them while they're telling it to know where to hit it. Sometimes you can mm-hmm. do it with just the logic and how they tell the story and why they choose to tell it one way rather than another way. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why you have to listen so intently. But you also have to watch them because they'll also give you a lot of personal signals too, usually. Yeah. Well, so that kind of leads into one of the questions I had was when he would say something at 
at the end of his sentence or after he would talk a little bit, I, I just thought, oh my gosh, there are a dozen directions that I could go with this. And I, I mean, I was thinking there were some fallacies that he had that like, I want to like, mm-hmm. do I address those? Like, do you, um, I mean, like, when do you ask more questions? When do you decide to, to speak into something to either explain something or help confront? Um, I mean, yeah. Like how do you in the moment decide what the next part of the conversation should look like? Oh man. Um, I, I think that first of all, okay, this is, this has always been hard for me to do, but you have to get out of, you, you got to get out of the mode of being rational. Like you're engaging in a psychological event. Okay. This is about how a person thinks and feels and how that's interacting and it's not going very well. Mm -hmm. So when you counsel people, reason is often not your friend. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, as often as not, I'll tell, sometimes I'll tell a husband, I'll be like, listen, at no point in the session, are you going to reason with your spouse? You know, there's not going to be any reasoning. Okay. And I know people who know me think, what, what the heck? Like this is Nick Gibson, right? (laughs) But like, yeah, I'm rational enough to know that there are limits to rationality and there are times when rationality is the worst thing you can possibly engage in. Mm. Right. Because that's just not, they're not in a place to hear that. Right. Because for intellectual people, rash reasoning or is very close to rationalization and rationalization is their standard coping mechanism. Mm. so their husband or their wife says this is how i feel and then they start evaluating that feeling mm-hmm. what why yeah feelings are by definition not valid or invalid they are internal events right they're just mm-hmm. this is how you feel mm-hmm. there's no way to argue with that right it's mm-hmm. like the mike burbiglia stand-up comedy routine where he would like argue something with his girlfriend she'd be like that's how i feel that's how i feel mm-hmm. and it's like the conversation stopper <laughs> because yeah. That's just how she feels, Mm -hmm. right? And so what we need to do oftentimes for people is not reason with them, but affirm them or like hold them or be silent or clarify that you heard what they really said, Mm -hmm. that you've listened to them deeply. Um, Ask for more. Make them feel safe validate the right to speak like all these things that have nothing to do with like evaluation yeah or or being the person that's right which you you said that at the beginning like i if i think that it's very easy if you see a problem or you think that there's something wrong to want to fix it or help the person fix it and Mm -hmm. that's not the point of these types of conversations no is for you to do for as the counselor to be the one to do that like when you talked about needing to helping them confront something. I can't be the one to confront that thing for them or to jump in and right. like they have to do that themselves. Right. When they leave the office, the only confrontations of that matter at all in their life are the confrontations they have engaged in. Mm-hmm. You can't slay the dragon for them. Yeah. You can't even give them the magic sword. They have to go get that themselves mm-hmm. too. Right. So um, my wife is very strong on this. She, she would say, well, she thinks I'm a good counselor, but she counsels very different from me. She hmm. is a 90% listener. She just lets people talk and talk. And she washes the dishes and folds the laundry and she just lets, 
lets the woman talk and talk yeah. and talk and talk and talk. And, talk to her. and then she'll ask a question and more questions and talk. And then after a while, like, she's the woman's like, I think I know what I need to do. I need to do blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she's like, I think that sounds very good. <laughs> and because and, and, Lexi is adamant, she is not going to tell anybody what to do with their life. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan Peterson calls this stealing someone's destiny. And he takes that from the writings of Carl Rogers, who was one of the psychotherapeutic people in the 1950s that moved counseling forward in certain ways. And he, he said a lot of things I think are idiotic, right? <laughs> but Rogers wrote a lot about listening to people, really, really listening to people. Mm-hmm. And that if you do that, it fundamentally changes their relationship with themselves. And they, and they do have the resources and knowledge to deal. And here's the problem. Um, if I tell somebody what to do, it comes out of my conceptual framework mm-hmm. and it's very likely it will not work for them at all. Yeah. Well, right? and it, but came... if, it, if they come up with the idea, it is native to their conceptual right. frameworks and it will work for them. They know exactly what it means to them. Right. And it's birthed out of their own experience mm-hmm. and their own conceptual conceptualization yeah. of it, which is probably how it, was conceptualized for you was because of your own experience and your own grappling with something, not because someone told you. Right. So the times I will tell people how I have solved problems is often when I recognize the person has a very similar temperament to mine. Hmm. And so when I tell them my thoughts or how this has gone for me, it will, it'll make sense to them. Sure. And if a person is not like me like that, I have to work harder to lead them to something. But mm-hmm. even then, my, my wife would say, and what Rogers and other psychotherapists would say is, it's still better mm-hmm. to let them figure it out themselves. Mm-hmm. It's their destiny. It's their confrontation. It's their problem. Yeah. And one of the biggest mistakes counselors make is they go, oh, let's figure out this problem. And they try to figure out the problem. The problem is, is that when that happens, the person you're counseling accepts you taking responsibility to figure out their problem. Mm. And so what happens is they give you responsibility for their problems. They take from you the language of psychology that they can use to justify their behaviors. And then they leave your office and they start using psychobabble in ways that they don't understand to justify their behaviors. They talk about how their anger is spiraling and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. They don't change at all. And they say that counselor couldn't help me. Mm. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. which is the worst possible outcome. Yeah, what you want to do is not give them psycho babble, crappy stuff that they can say that justifies their behavior by sounding intelligent and scientific, and you need to lay the responsibility for the problem squarely on that person. Mm-hmm. This is your problem. Mm-hmm. How are you going to solve your problem? Yeah. How can I listen to you as you figure it out? Yeah, it's you know, so hard to sit in the counselor position at, yeah some as someone counseling someone else and to do that because it's so slow it's so much faster and easier to just spit out the right answer oh yeah oh yeah and i, I mean you'll sit there and just be like that. sometimes you'll just be like this person is just dumb or crazy mm-hmm. or but though as a christian the lord will help you grow in love mm-hmm. because this is their first time with that problem even though you've heard it a thousand times mm-hmm. and know exactly yeah. what they should do. This is their life that they must be the hero of. Mm-hmm. Um, and God has given you the job of being here to listen to them. Mm-hmm. And you are not so important that you can't listen to this person. Mm-hmm. And this is what you're here to do. So shut up and listen, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, um, 
So yeah, I mean, you'll listen to people and, and they'll just say stuff that's just really, really dumb. Mm-hmm. But the part of the issue is, is that of course that's the case. When I talk to my financial planner, everything I say about finances sounds idiotic <laughs> to him. Right. Yeah. It's his field. Yeah. Right. Spirituality and morality and, and emotional and spiritual health is our field. Mm-hmm. Like if other people don't sound stupid to us, we're not very competent. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, they're in, yeah. but everybody is stuck in our field because it's the stuff of their lives. Mm-hmm. So you and I have cheated terribly. Mm-hmm. We have made our occupation the thing everybody has to do, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And yet pastors and professional ministers often have some of the worst personal lives, mm-hmm. which there's no excuse for because they've been studying personal life their right. whole career, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. so when a plumber comes in and like finds women mystifying and can't figure out how he could possibly have a good marriage, we should be like very sympathetic to that, mm-hmm. right? I'm much more sympathetic to a plumber or a doctor or a banker than a pastor, mm. you know? Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. So, um, yeah, you just got to listen and mm-hmm. you give them what you give them just the information they need to figure it out. Yeah. It's like if you're working with an eight year old working on a math problem. Yeah. You don't tell them the answer. You listen to how they're trying to figure out the problem. Yeah. You figure out what misunderstanding is keeping them from getting to the next step in the problem. Mm-hmm. And you give them a hint at the thing that if they figured out, they could move forward in the problem. Right. I like that picture that you had of, it's not just about having the person that you're talking to slay the dragon, but to go and pick up the sword or go find the sword and also pick it up for themselves. I think a lot of times counselors or people who are in a counseling position will try to force a sword in a person's hand or like go find it for them. And, and that right. just doesn't work because there's no ownership. There's no, um, right. there's not that fire in the, in the person who's being counseled to go and do the thing that they need to do. Yeah. Like to put this in Jungian terms, um, there's the chaos of the person's life, right? That they have to solve, mm-hmm. but their personal life is not ordered enough to face the external chaos. Mm-hmm. So the sword so to speak, to slay the dragon, is ordering yourself enough yeah. to then deal with it. So if you have a crazy, let's say you have a very dysfunctional family and you're like, I need to do something about my dysfunctional family. Great. Here's the problem. You're dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. You, you're never going to be able to face the dysfunctionality of your family unless you face the dysfunctionality of you. Yeah. Right. Yep. So getting the sword to slay the dragon, right, is you have to get you have to order and face all the dysfunctions that are in you, Mm -hmm. right? At least enough so that you can positively relate to the chaos of your dysfunctional family, right? Mm -hmm. And then you'll find you didn't grow nearly enough. You revert so fast back to who you were, right? Yeah. And then you have to keep working on that. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes people think that the problem people say they have is their problem. It's not. Their problem is that they don't have the resources to deal with their problem. Mm -hmm. So their first problem is becoming the kind of person that could deal with their problem. Yeah. That's why marriage counseling is so hard mm-hmm. because you talk to people in marriage counseling and usually the issue is both people need to become more godly. Mm-hmm. If they became more godly, they'd have the internal spiritual resources to make their marriage work. Right. They don't. Right. And so what you want to do is like take them apart for two years and like take them out to like 
some island in the panhandle of Alaska and like help them grow in their <laughs> spiritual faith and character. Yeah. And then you bring them back together, they'd be madly in love for yeah. 50 years, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, and so we have to realize about ourselves. The other thing too is this is like, you listen to people's stories and you internalize them in this sense. You go home and you thank your spouse for how faithful and wonderful they are for all their good qualities that they haven't dumped on you. Like every time I have a couple of counseling sessions in a day, Lexi always knows it. Cause mm-hmm. I just go home and be like, baby, thank you for not sleeping with all kinds of people just cause you <laughs> felt like it. You were angry at me and like yeah. you're so, and you don't yell at me much at all. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't remember the last time you berated me like as a subhuman being. Mm-hmm. It's you're just wonderful. Like you just, there's a lot of thankfulness that can come into your life. And even yeah. though you have to wreck and also you don't want to internalize their problems in the sense that like you take, because when you feel drained by counseling, mm-hmm. there's two kinds of drains you can feel. One is listening to people is enormously hard work. Mm-hmm. So you will feel if you counsel people for a couple of hours, yeah, you'll feel a, a mentally exhausted, yes. and emo- kind of emotionally exhausted. If you're doing it right. If you're doing it right. Yeah. Yes. However, if you feel anxious and you have trouble sleeping, like you there's a, you can also internalize their problems yeah. and take responsibility for them the way you shouldn't. And it, it feels like empathy, but it's not, mm-hmm. right? And so you got to keep track of that. If you feel tired, that's just normal. Mm-hmm. That means you listened well and you worked hard. That's good. Yeah. If you feel anxious or you can't get it out of your head, or that, that's not good. Mm-hmm. That means, and that may actually mean that you let their problem be transferred onto you and they walked out without it, which is bad. Yeah. Yep. Which sometimes you just have to correct that the next time you meet with them. Mm-hmm. I think I might have left the wrong impression on you last time we talked. Mm. I think I may have wrongly taken responsibility for your, made you feel like I was taking responsibility for your problem. It's your problem. Yeah. You're going to conquer it. God has given you everything you need to conquer it. You're mm-hmm. strong enough. You can become the person that overcomes this. But I just need to make sure you know, when I walk out of this session, I'm not going to think about this all night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But yeah. I'm gonna, but I am a hundred percent here with you right now for this hour mm-hmm. to help you sort it out. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, this has been super helpful for me, um, Nick. As we wrap up, can you just reiterate those two things that you say you focus on as far as helping? How it is that you're wanting to help somebody when you're counseling them? Yeah, I mean the main two things I look at is in what ways do they need to confront themselves in ways they really don't want to, mm-hmm. and therefore they don't want to know what they need to know. Right? Yeah. And the second is what confusion is keeping them from conceptualizing things in a way that could really help them. Yeah. So they're thinking about something in a way that's confused. Yeah. And because of that, they can't figure out the answer because they're stuck. Mm-hmm. So in both cases, when people come to you in counseling, it's because they're stuck. Right. Mm-hmm. And so why are they stuck and how can they be unstuck? Mm-hmm. Either they're repressing or suppressing the truth they need to face. Mm-hmm. Or that they can't see the truth clearly because it's jumbled and confused, yeah. which is exactly what we should believe theologically. We believe that the, that the devil is a confuser. He doesn't argue against the truth. He yeah. jumbles the yeah. truth. And then he tries to make the truth so hard to understand that we really just want to turn to sense experience. We'll flip through things on our phone and watch TV and eat more. Mm-hmm. And because it's an easy way to feel better. 
and then we, we and so the truth is confused and we're pushed back to the stream of sense experience right yeah that's the bondage right and so we need to just clear up the truth be like oh that doesn't best have to be that jumbled look and we pull it apart and go look at that and they go oh right? mm-hmm. or what don't we want to face which, yeah. the, which is the suppression of the truth which is the flesh yeah we don't want to know the truth about us because we'd have to repent and believe and turn to god right mm-hmm. romans 3 or not romans 3 john 3 it says men Jesus is the light of the world, but men love darkness mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. don't want to be brought into the light because if they're brought into the light, they'll be exposed. Yeah. And in counseling, that's one of our greatest fears. Our, our great, one of our greatest fears is that we would be exposed, mm-hmm. humiliated as the people we really are, mm-hmm. that we would find out that we are so unsophisticated, which is almost always the truth because it's usually your primal semi-subconsciousness, your desire for power or security or whatever that's jumbling all your thoughts in life and controlling you and when you find out what the problem is it's like oh this is my insecurity mm, <laughs> yeah like, that's really humiliating yeah i'm yep. a sophisticated person <laughs> you're like you'll not miss yeah you know? <laughs> right and so one of the things i tell people is what we're going to find when we figure out what your problem is it's probably going to be fairly simple and it's going to feel really humiliating mm. but that when, when you have that feeling that's the feeling of the beginning of healing yeah. and freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me just say one more caveat to that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people just need encouragement. Hmm. Yeah. They just feel weak. And mm-hmm. so the lie they're believing is they don't have the resources to succeed. Mm-hmm. That God haven't, hasn't given them the resources to succeed. The image of God in them is not powerful enough that the social capital of Christ's church isn't enough, that they just don't have enough mm-hmm. and they aren't enough. And sometimes you need to just encourage them, but you're still confronting a lie. Yeah. And you're still clarifying the truth. Right. But you're you're like you're still dealing with a weak that weakness. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. So I don't want you to think that what I do in counseling is just be like, here's the lie you're believing. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody believes a lie. There's always an idolatry. Mm-hmm. But that idolatry and that uh, that repenting of the lie is a therapeutic freedom. There's a healing and there's a freedom that always comes. It's not oppressive. It's painful at first. It's like, oh, that hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the person we're talking about that happened at least once where they yeah. were like, oh, that's that's a tough thing. Yeah. But you immediately saw a, a lift in the person mm-hmm. where they were like, yeah, but that opens up new options and that helps me see something better and there's a future now. Yeah. Right? Yep. You lose the present safety of the conception of yourself that is safe. So you lose something in the present. It's painful, but it opens up new vistas for the future. Mm-hmm. If what you really want is healing, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to be healed, that's not what you want. Yeah. And that reveals to you whether the person you're talking to wants to be healed or not. Mm-hmm. And if they don't want to be healed, that's your confrontation. Mm. That's good. Thanks, Nick. All right. Well, this is fun. It's been fun having you and Jill and Nicole in sessions that I have with people. Yeah. And um, it makes me a better counselor because I'm like thinking through. Thinking <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. I'm on my best behavior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. been very helpful. Thank you. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Yep. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you feel like Aaron sometimes and you've got questions about something we've talked about or questions that you'd like answered in a podcast episode, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. 
We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.